morning. I look around today. I see a lot of visitors here with us. I've already gotten to meet some. I haven't gotten to meet all yet, but we're glad that you're here. Whether you're visiting with us or whether you're one of our regular members, we're, we're so glad that you're here. And I hope the time we spend here together today will be beneficial for all of us as we strive to come together and to worship God and to strengthen and encourage each other. I want to especially thank everyone who participated in our door knocking effort yesterday. We had some 19 people get involved with that. Some uh, just were here in the morning and had to leave. Some just showed up for the afternoon shift. Uh, some pulled a double shift. Most did, in fact. But I think everybody that participated in that, uh, we... All were challenged because it puts us out of our comfort zone. And so I appreciate those who are willing to step out and do that. But I, I think we all found it pretty uplifting to go out and, and meet people. And I haven't gotten everybody's finalized reports yet to compile it. So if you haven't given that to me, do. But I, I know that as of right now, we were able to uh, reach at least 200 houses yesterday. Now, of course, the most common response we got was nobody coming to the door and so we just left in some information but uh, several people did come to the door and when they did I know a lot of us had good conversations uh, we had opportunities to pray for people for particular needs that they had we had some that seemed receptive to coming and visiting or perhaps having some bible studies so all in all it was it was good and if you participated in that uh, or if you just helped uh, to sort of organize some things behind the scenes, or if you just helped uh, pray for that event, I really appreciate that. And uh, we're going to, to be doing that again and try to get that more organized. Here's one thing to keep in mind. House to house, heart to heart, organize this. And their initial effort was to have 200 congregations across the country participate. In the end, 540 churches of Christ around the world participated in this. And that's just as a result of two congregations that had gotten together and done some door knocking and had this idea. So that's the power of just one or two churches in your local community. What a far-reaching effect it can have. And even if ultimately none of the seeds planted yesterday bear any fruit, we're part of something bigger and just going out and stepping out there and doing it and helping to strengthen and encourage those in other places to go and do it too uh, we don't know what sort of effect our efforts might have had so thank you for that in second corinthians chapter 3 paul is talking about the glory of the lord revealed to moses when he communed with god in fact, uh, Moses had to veil his face afterwards because he reflected God's glory so powerfully. People couldn't look at him, so he had to keep a, a veil on. And Paul goes on then to metaphorically apply that to those of us who are Christians, and he says, in Christ, that veil is lifted. It's taken away. And he concludes the passage in verse number 18. He says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, I want you to notice two things about that passage. First of all, we are supposed to reflect Jesus. When people see us, 
They should see Jesus living in us, in what we do, in what we say. But secondly, not only should they see Jesus, they should see that more and more, day by day. As Paul says there, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We're transformed more into his image with each passing day. We should become more and more like him. I've been mulling this idea over a lot lately. We just finished up on Wednesday evenings a class where we were talking about the importance of prayer. And the inspiration for that was the question that the disciples come and ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. In other words, if we want to know how to pray better, we want to know how to have a more effective prayer life, we look at Jesus. Our prayer lives should reflect his. We just started a class on personal evangelism on Wednesday evenings, inspired in particular by our door knocking, and we had a lesson this week where we looked at Jesus' motivation. That is, if we're going to do this, we, we need to be motivated. Why do we need to share Jesus with others? And the best place to look to understand that is to see how Jesus himself was motivated to evangelize. And I've been thinking, actually, about how we can have all of our lessons, really, for a whole calendar year revolve around this idea. More on that later. That's something for next year. But fundamentally, we're talking here about discipleship. That's the idea. Following Jesus demonstrating that concretely in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, each and every day, every interaction that we have with people. Think about the question this way. What if Jesus came and switched places with you today? What difference would that make? What if he came and Switch places with you on the job? What if he came and sat in your desk at school? What if he came and stood here behind the pulpit instead of me? As Christians, we should already be showing Jesus to others. Our goal in life should be to introduce him to others to make him known. We should want everyone who doesn't know Jesus now to come to know him, to discover the, the joy and the hope and the peace that comes with being in a relationship with him. And to do that, we have to demonstrate him in our lives. And to do that, that means first and foremost, we have to know him. We have to know Jesus to be able to show him in our lives so that others can see him living in us. And there are any number of ways we might talk about how we can more effectively do that, but given that I'm talking here about showing Jesus in our daily lives, I want us to consider it for a few minutes this morning through the lens of a typical day in the life of Jesus. What was Jesus' daily life like? Now, Scripture, of course, doesn't tell us anything about the daily life of Jesus. But wouldn't it be fascinating to know more? I mean, think about it this way. When you come home from a long day's work, 
you see your spouse, you probably ask her or him, or maybe they ask you, how was your day? What'd you do today? I think back to when I was in school, my dad would pick me up when I was a little kid, and every day he'd say, you know, what'd you learn at school today? And if you were like me, or if your kids were like me, the response is invariably, nothing. But I think if we looked at the life of Jesus, we would find something more interesting than that. It wouldn't it be great to know, to be able to ask him what his day was like. Now, Jesus lived for some 33 years on this earth, and simple calculation tells us that's a little over 12,000 days. And of those 12,000 days, he spent about three years, give or take, in his earthly ministry. So that's 1,000 to 1,200 days, somewhere in there. And yet, when we look at the four gospel accounts, we try to piece together the different days that are related. We don't know anything more than 50 days, the partial events of 50 days in Jesus' life. The Apostle John reflects on those severe limitations of being able to tell about everything in Jesus' life in his narrative. In the passage that Brooks read just a few moments ago, John chapter 20, verse 30, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He says again, the very last verse of his gospel, there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did too much for us to know each and everything that he did. But as we read through the gospel accounts, we can start to piece things together. We can get an idea of his habits, the sort of everyday rhythms of his life. And from that, I think we can have a pretty good idea of what a typical day in the life of Jesus would have looked like. And I think this is a good question for us, for us to ask if we want to go out and to model his life in ours. So what does a day in Jesus' life look like? Well, first of all, we'd see that he took time for private devotions. In fact, he may have been taking that time first thing in the morning. This might be what we'd find him doing first of all. Jesus often slipped away from the crowds, even from his own disciples, in order to spend time in prayer to God, in order to spend time meditating about his word. He did that because he recognized it was so important, this time with the Lord. In Mark chapter 1, verse number 35, it says, Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. I think surely there's a suggestion here for us in all this. If Jesus needed those times of reflection, those times of devotion, those times of prayer, how much more do you and I need to set aside the time to be involved in that? We're told more than once that he spent part of the night, sometimes even all night, in prayer to God. 
Uh, Luke chapter 6 indicates that Jesus spent the whole night praying before he selected the 12 apostles out of his disciples to be that inner circle. One of the unfortunate facts of our modern society is that we always feel so busy, so rushed. Our lives feel so frantic and that we're just being pulled in too many directions and there's just not enough time in the day to do everything that we want. And so one of the things that often falls through the cracks is our prayer life, is our relationship with God in these personal devotions. So how did Jesus find the time to do it? Well, it's not because he just had the time. He wasn't busy. In fact, as we saw there, Peter and the rest come looking for for him because everybody is looking for you. Where you been? Jesus was surrounded by crowds at all times. In fact, you flip forward a couple of chapters. Mark chapter 3, verse 20, it tells us that they were pressing in him so, on him so much, he went home to eat, and he couldn't even eat. Always people were making demands for him to bless them, for him to perform some sort of healing, for him to teach them, for him to give them counsel. Jesus' life was just as hectic and frenzied as yours and mine, so where did he find the time to pray? He made it. He carved it out of his schedule. It's not that he just had an abundance of free time. He made that a priority. In some cases, literally praying while other people were sleeping because he knew it was that important. This isn't a question of time. It's a question of priorities. And if we want to be like Jesus, we'll make a priority of prayer and personal devotion too. It's also clear, if we spent some time with Jesus, if we happened to take our visit with him on a Sabbath day, that we would find him in the synagogue. Because Jesus worshipped. Luke chapter 4, verse number 16 says that he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, his hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. It was his custom, his regular practice, to go and participate in the synagogue worship. And it seems that he participated to such an extent that he was a regular reader. This was part of his routine. Not just anybody got up to read. The president of the synagogue selected you to get up and do that. It's difficult to understand how so many Millions of people all across the world who claim to be Christians, who claim to be followers of Jesus, who claim that his way of life is the best way to live, don't feel the need to regularly assemble together with God's people and worship him. And so a typical Sunday morning will find them out in the yard or out at the lake or going to brunch or sleeping in, or just hanging out, getting ready for the football game, who knows, whatever it may be. Getting together with God's people is of tremendous value. Not only in coming together and coming into the presence of God, but coming together to to strengthen and encourage each other. There's a value in assembling with the church that we miss out on when we don't come together. That's the whole point of the Hebrews writer, chapter 10, verse 25. Don't stop meeting together. You need to stir up love and good works 
in each other. If we'd followed Jesus, we'd recognize, like him, the value of the corporate worship of God's people. Now, maybe the most obvious thing we'd learn from spending a day with Jesus would be his deep concern for the needs of people. To return to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 29, it says, Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. We have another example of Jesus helping people. Just a few verses later, verse 40. A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. We go into the next chapter, Mark chapter 2, and we see him helping people yet again. A paralytic came to him, and of course he couldn't walk, so his friends lowered him down through the roof of the house. Those big crowds that were surrounding Jesus, they were pressing in upon him so thickly that they couldn't get through the door. And so they cut the roof off, and they lowered him down. Jesus saw that man, and he told him to get up, pick up his bedroll, and walk, and he did. Over and over and over again, we find Jesus having compassion on those who were in need. He made the lame to walk. He made the blind to see. He made the deaf to hear. He even raised people from the dead on at least three occasions that we have stories recorded of. And it's not just examples like that. Maybe one that we overlooked in Mark chapter 10, another incident that shows his concern for people. Beginning in verse number 13. It says there that they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. People were trying to bring their kids to Jesus, and the disciples said, don't bother him with that. You know, this is a society that didn't value children very much at all. They should be neither seen nor heard. Uh, They just didn't want them around. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. If we would be like Jesus, we have to care about other people. That's a big part of what that door knocking yesterday was all about, going out in the community and just meeting people. In some cases, seeing if they had any needs, telling them about the food bank, offering to pray for whatever might be going on in their lives. That's reflecting Jesus. Jesus was concerned with others. And if we want to be like him, we have to be concerned about widows, about orphans, about the sick, about the aged, about those who've recently lost people in their lives. There, there are situations, there are emergencies in people's lives that just should not go unnoticed by us if we're trying to follow him. Christians are people who care. We have to be if we're going to reflect him. We have to show our care and concern for those who are in need. That's what he did every day of his life. If we followed Jesus around for a day, we would also find that he taught 
and he taught people in a number of different ways. Because of his concern for people, he had frequent interaction with them in all sorts of different avenues. So sometimes we would find him delivering what we would call a sermon, that is, a, a proper sort of formal address. Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is a great example of that, right? What we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is the pinnacle of Jesus' ethical and moral instruction. But you go to a place like Mark chapter 12, for instance, and we find this devoted to Jesus' teachings in a different way because here he's answering questions of people. So he answers a difficult question beginning in verse number 13 of Mark 12. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. Man, they're laying it on thick, aren't they? (laughs) Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Then a few verses later, he faces this hypothetical question, you know, the sort that some people like to to ask Christians sometimes. Who would be the husband in the next life of someone who'd been married seven times? And he gives his answer in verse number 29, pardon me, verse number 24. Is this not the reason you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You're asking a hypothetical that's ridiculous, he says. In this same question, he answers maybe the most important question that was asked of him. What's the greatest commandment? What's the first commandment of all? And he says the most important, verse 29, is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. His whole life was spent in preaching and teaching, in formal settings where he was delivering big public addresses, in more informal settings where he was just answering questions, sometimes one-on-one with the people he encountered, like that Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. You could look at a lot of other places, Matthew 13, for instance, where we have him listing a number of parables, one of his frequent methods of teaching, where he tries to tell them about the kingdom of God. And that's really what all of his teaching was about, God's rule, God's reign. God is coming, and he's taking charge of things. He's setting things right. And the whole point of that is because of it, you have a new way to live. Jesus came and embodied God in the flesh. He was God in human form. And so he showed us how God expected us to live, the way he intended humanity to be back in the beginning. And we're empowered to live that way because of his life and his death and his resurrection. Now, we're not all called to be teachers in the formal sense. I know that. Not all of us are gifted that way. Paul talks about teaching as a spiritual gift. We're instructed at other points. James, for instance, tells us that not everybody should be a teacher. But we are all called to tell people about Jesus. 
We shouldn't be ashamed of that. We need to have that boldness to go out and to, in whatever way is suitable to our particular abilities and the particular person we're talking to, be able to tell them what an impact he's had on us. If we want to be like Jesus, we have to be willing to share him with others. But not only did he teach people, he challenged people. In Luke chapter 6, we find the account of him calling the 12 to be his apostles. These men were already following him, but he called them out of that life before to come and follow him full time. And we don't know all the details, but we know in each case, he challenged them to drop whatever they were doing, leave their old life behind, their old job, their old family, their old place, whatever, and to come and to follow him. And so, for instance, in Matthew chapter 9, we find that he found the tax collector, Matthew or Levi, sitting there at the toll booth collecting his taxes. And he said, come and follow me. Challenged him. And he did it. Matthew dropped it all to follow Jesus. Or in Luke chapter 5, we find him calling Peter and his associates there in the fishing business. He performed a miracle where he gave them a big catch of fish. And Jesus says then, when Peter falls down at his knees, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord, he realizes something special is going on. Jesus says, fear not, from now on you'll be catching men. And the story ends with Peter and the rest dropping everything to follow him. And you see, the point of this is when we really try to associate ourselves with Jesus and his life revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, we're going to be challenged too. If we take these things seriously, he challenges us to make serious changes in our lives, to drop those other things that we consider to be important and to follow him above all else. If we want to follow him, we have to take that challenge seriously. And in fact, then we need to go out and challenge others to do that very same thing. The Christian life is one of challenge, accepting them and then passing those challenges along to others. That's what we'd find if we truly followed Jesus. We could sum all this up, finally, by saying that Jesus lived an exemplary life. Mark chapter 7, verse 37, we find the verdict that was rendered there by some of the people who'd heard him. They said, he does all things well. Another time, some of Jesus' enemies had sent some soldiers to arrest him, and they came back empty-handed, and they asked, what, what's up? Where is he? And the way they explained it, John 7, verse 46, is no one ever spoke like this man. They were astounded. They couldn't do it. But in the midst of all this, the Hebrews writer reminds us, Hebrews 4, verse 15, that Jesus was just like us. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. Jesus faced the same pressures that we do. He faced the same temptations that we do. And yet, he went about doing good. He did all things well. No one ever spoke like him. He lived without sin. Now, I realize that none of us here is going to live a sinless life. And thank God, he doesn't call us to do that. He calls us instead to faithfulness. But that means we need to strive 
for that perfection. We need to strive to be more and more like Jesus, transformed into his image day by day. We need to strive to live lives that are pure and holy and more like his. Be as clean as we can in thought, in word, in our actions. And as we follow him, hopefully others will be able to see that lifestyle and be attracted to it. See Jesus in us. You remember what Paul says? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me, even as I am of Christ. That's a bold statement. Can we say that? I'm imitating Christ. You need to imitate me. <laughs> we all need to get to that level or strive for that level where we can make that statement. You know, ultimately, Jesus didn't do a lot of things that we do. <laughs> Never rode in an airplane, never bought stocks or bonds or anything like that or property, never even graduated from college or high school, never wrote a book of his own memoirs. And yet, in spite of that, he's had the greatest impact on humanity of anyone who's ever lived. I want to challenge us to live our lives emulating him so that hopefully we can have an influence on others in that same positive direction. Our hope here this morning is that we've all tried to visualize just a typical day in the life of Jesus, and in doing that, we've seen something of the pattern that our days should follow. So the obvious question is, how does your life measure up to that pattern? Can people see Jesus when they look at you? If you're already a Christian and they can't, then I suggest you might need to make some changes. You definitely need to make some changes, and you might need to do the, that in a public way this morning. If you're here and you're not a Christian, recall what John says in our text that what we do have written about Jesus is so that you'll believe in him and that believing you'll have life in his name. Because of all these things that Jesus did day in and day out, the most important thing that he did is that he died for you so that you could be reconciled to God. And if you've never put your faith, your trust in him, we invite you to do that this morning and turn to God in repentance be buried with him in baptism and have your sins washed away. Be added to his people and go out and begin to live that life like Jesus. Whatever your need may be this morning, if you need to begin to follow him today or just begin to follow him again, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.